Welcome, and thanks for checking out the Living Word Family Church Sermon Podcast. Before we get to the message, we'd like to invite you to check out Living Word Family Church if you don't already have a church home. For more information, you can check out our website at livingwordfamily.org. We're in uh, also the second week of a five-week series of messages called Take a Good Look. Last week was Looking Up, where we looked at God and the upshot is that for all of the doctrinal correctness and the things that we know about God, uh, things that we know about his divine attributes, for instance, I think uh, the best and most comprehensive way to think about God Almighty, uh, God Almighty is as our heavenly Father. If we don't have a handle on that mindset, if we don't have a real grasp on the Father heart of God, we will always struggle trying to get a handle on this perceived tension between justice and mercy. Uh, We will always have trouble getting a handle on healing, protection, provision, forgiveness, all the things that God promises us. But if we can see him as a father, it suddenly becomes a lot easier to balance all of these things and to receive all these things because what father doesn't want good things for his children? Now, Today, we're going to be looking down. We're going to be talking about Satan. There's a lot of misunderstanding about Satan, the devil, and full disclosure, I am not a Satanologist. Like with God, we have to get our doctrine on the devil from the word. I want to spend a few minutes talking about the origin of Satan, but that's not really as important as you might think. It is commonly believed, and I think correctly believed, that uh, Satan wasn't always Satan. He wasn't always the enemy. He wasn't always the devil. He was an angel, a good angel, a high-ranking angel. It is believed, again, I think correctly, that when he rebelled against God, he managed to convince a third of the angelic host to rebel with him. And when they joined him in that rebellion and were uh, expelled from the presence of God, they ceased to be known as angels and came to be known as devils or demons. We have to understand that at the time of their defeat, they didn't cease to exist. They are still around. They are spiritual beings. They are simply no longer submitted to God. We're going to look at several passages of Scripture today, and I need to keep moving or this could be a very long message. So if you want to just jot these passages down or read along, uh, you're welcome to turn to them, but I'm not going to give you a lot of time to get there because, like I said, there's there's a lot of them to look at. But, again, if we're going to... There's more about the devil in the Bible than you might think there is. And some of the things you think are in there might not be in there. But we're going to read a couple of passages, uh, especially these first two. And you're going to be familiar with them. Most of the passages we look at today, you are going to be familiar with. But I have to tell you this. There is not universal agreement on the origin of Satan. It's pretty agreed upon, okay? Everything I just said. Uh, But when we look at these passages about Lucifer, most of you have heard uh, that Satan, his angelic name was Lucifer. Lucifer's not really a proper name, but it'll do for the purposes of our discussion. Uh, 
But some people say, well, if you assume that the devil used to be an angel, used to be good, then what do you do with Jesus in John, I think it's 844, where he says, uh, you're of your father, the devil. He was a murderer from the beginning. Is he saying that Satan was always Satan? The devil was always the devil. How do you square that with he used to be good? Now, I think, uh, and I had a brief chat with my mom about this this morning, and so, and and it turns out we agree, so we agree. (laughs) I think if you you look at the fact that is there such a thing as before the beginning? You know, God existed before Genesis 1-1, right? So we're going to look at some things that, look, that, that happened, that clearly happened in the Word of God, and we'll try to figure out, because sometimes the big question is, all right, when does this happen? When did this happen? Look first at Isaiah chapter 14. We'll begin in verse 12. Isaiah 14:12. How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. How you are cut down to the ground, you who weakened nations. For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. Yet you shall be brought down to Sheol, to the lowest, pit, lowest depths of the pit. Those who, will, those who see you will gaze at you and consider you, saying, Is this the man who made the earth tremble, who shook kingdoms, who made the world as a wilderness and destroyed its cities, who did not open the house of his prisoners? Now, it's important to understand that this starts out in earlier verses in this passage, or right before this. This is a word against the king of Babylon. Isaiah was instructed to take up this word and deliver it about or to the king of Babylon. It wasn't Nebuchadnezzar, some unnamed king. And by extension, all other evil worldly rulers. Okay? And that's why when you read the, you know, when it talks about a man, is this the man? Well, Satan's not a man if he's an angel. But by the time you get to verse 12, it clearly gets deeper. There's a double application. The word Lucifer, by the way, means light bearer. But in the actual original text, I think this is actually rendered day star. Day star. And uh, for what it's worth, for you who are into this kind of thing, uh, day star or Lucifer was actually a name given to the planet Venus. It's the brightest thing in the morning, in the morning sky, depending on what time of year it is. It is the third brightest object after the sun and the moon. And people worshipped Venus. They called it Lucifer, the day star. Uh, anyway. What we see in this passage is a, is a uh, series of I will statements. I will uh, ascend above the clouds. I will. I will replace God, essentially. Keep this stuff in mind. I've got more to say about that after this second passage, uh, perhaps even more famous. Ezekiel chapter 28, beginning in verse 1. Ezekiel 28, 1. The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, say to the prince of Tyre, Thus says the Lord God, because your heart is lifted up, and you say, I am a God, I sit in the seat of gods, in the midst of the seas, yet you are a man and not a God. Though you set your heart as the heart of God, behold, you are wiser than Daniel. There is no secret that can be hidden from you. With your wisdom and your understanding, you have gained riches for yourself and gathered gold and silver into your treasuries. By your great wisdom in trade, you have increased your riches and your heart is lifted up because of your riches. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you have set your heart as a, 
as the heart of a god. Behold, therefore I will bring strangers against you, the most terrible of the nations, and they shall draw their swords against the beauty of your wisdom and defile your splendor. They shall throw you down into the pit, and you shall die the death of the slain in the midst of the seas. Will you slay... Will you still say before him who slays you, I am a God? But you shall be a man and not a God in the hand of him who slays you. You shall die the death of the uncircumcised by the hand of aliens. For I have spoken, says the Lord God. Now, this is the prince of Tyre who's being addressed here. Some people point out when they stop here that whatever else is said in this chapter can't be about the devil because it says clearly more than once that the prince of Tyre is a man. How is the devil going to be slain by the nations? with swords. But we read on and we see this shift again. Clearly we have moved on to something else. In verse 11, moreover, the word of the Lord came to me saying, son of man, take up a lamentation for the king of Tyre and say to him, thus says the Lord God, you were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden the garden of God, every precious stone was your covering, the sardius, topaz, and diamond, beryl, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, turquoise, and emerald with gold. The workmanship of your timbrels and pipes was prepared for you on the day you were created. You were the anointed cherub who covers. I establish you. Established you. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked back and forth in the midst of fiery stones. You were perfect in your ways from the day you were created till iniquity was found in you. By the abundance of your trading, you became filled with violence within and you sinned. Therefore, I cast you as a profane thing out of the mountain of God and I destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the fiery stones. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of splendor. I cast you to the ground. I laid you before kings that they might gaze at you. You defiled your sanctuaries by the multitude of, iniquity, of your iniquities, by the iniquity of your trading. Therefore, I brought fire from your midst. It devoured you, and I turned you to ashes upon the earth in the sight of all who saw you. And all who knew you among the peoples are astonished at you. You have become a horror and shall be no more forever." Starts off talking about the prince of Tyre, a man, and then starts talking about the king of Tyre. This is the devil, the power behind the throne of the prince of Tyre. This is a spiritual entity. And we're talking about somebody with a past. These verses say some things about Lucifer, whatever his name was, covering cherub, uh, the musical instruments, the holy mountain of God. Now, nobody knows the geography of heaven. Where is the mountain of God? And when he was cast from it, where was he cast to? Because, and I don't know if I have this anywhere else in my notes, there's just so much information in here. The picture is that at whatever point in time this took place, there was this satanic rebellion. Satan, one-third of the angels, somehow tried to, what made them think they could pull it off? I don't know, but they decide I should be God. Satan should be God. A third of them support him. There's this battle. Of course, God and the good angels are victorious, and Satan and the bad angels are cast down to earth, almost imprisoned on earth. They're cast out of heaven and down to earth. Now, I'll tell you in a little bit why I'm not sure that's exactly how it went down. But here's the most important thing in these passages as I see it, and it is in both passages, this idea of I will. I will. Ezekiel 28.15 again says, You were perfect in your ways from the day you were created till iniquity 
was found in you. You need to keep that in mind while I go to another very famous passage in the Bible. This time we're going to go to Genesis chapter 3. Remember, God created everything. The heavens and the earth and everything on the earth. And it was good. And he created everything plus man and woman. And it was very good. And then in chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Now, the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will look, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened. They knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, Where are you? So he said, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded that you should not eat? And the man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. There is so much in that passage, and we've talked about it before, and we'll talk about it again, but not today. The thing I need to see you is this. Original sin, this is what we just read about, the fall of man. Everything was good. Everything was very good, and God placed man in this beautiful garden, Eden, and walks with them in the cool of the day. And then they sinned. They rebelled against God. They did the one single thing that God told them they couldn't do. And what happened as a result? This was so, this was literally world changing. This was high treason. This was a heinous crime against God. And it was so bad that the echoes of that one, what we call the original sin, still reverberate today. You and I inherit that disease. Every one of us is born with that sin thanks to that one act. That's how bad it was. But guess what? We can be redeemed. Adam, I believe we'll see Adam and Eve in heaven. I believe they were redeemed. They were deceived, you see. They were tricked. It was a decision, okay? They, they decided, but it was still, it was a decision made under the outside influence, under the influence of the serpent, the crafty serpent. It's no excuse. My whole point is they didn't come up, come up with the idea on their own. They weren't, it, the, the scripture tells us they weren't just sitting there staring at that tree going, I wonder how it would be if I really ate it. I wonder if God really meant what he said. No, they were living the life they were supposed to leave until the serpent addressed them and said, you know what you guys really ought to do is try this tree. You're far from dying, you're going to find out that as good as things are, they'll be even better. They were deceived. Lucifer, on the other hand, 
had the privilege of seeing God in all of his glory, all of his goodness, his splendor, his power, manifested power. There was no one to tempt him. Iniquity iniquity was just found in him. This is the thing. This is why Satan cannot be redeemed. You were perfect in all your ways from the day you were created until iniquity was found in you. Nobody was whispering in his ear. He had the privilege of seeing everything up close and personal and decided on his own to sin against God. He said, I will. This is the origin of sin. And it's called pride. Pride is not merely haughtiness. It's not just self-love. It is an insistence on absolute autonomy. It is the refusal to submit the conviction that we always know better. And we are getting closer to the stuff that matters. But first this, since we're in Genesis, I need to point out to you, I'm sure you noticed it, that when we meet the devil here in Genesis, he's already the devil. So whatever took place in terms of his rebellion against God, it took place before this. And this is only Genesis chapter 3. So when did this rebellion take place? What was the devil doing on earth? Now there, I'm going to introduce this. I am not advocating it. I'm simply letting you know it is a, uh, it's a possibility. And it's a, and it's a theory that has been embraced by many. And it's called the gap theory. How many of you have ever heard of it? That there is actually a gap between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2. That God began his creative work. He created the heavens of the earth. And then at some point very early on, there was this rebellion. So the earth was created. But this creation was interrupted. Was there Now, people use the term a pre-Adamic creation. And say, well, that's not scriptural. Well, pre-Adamic creation is absolutely scriptural. Because God was creating for five days before he created Adam. Can we agree on that? That before Adam, there were plants and animals and fish and birds and everything else, right? Everything was ready and then Adam was created and placed amongst them. The question is, you know, kind of goes back. I'm not going to re-preach this. We have way too many other things to talk about today. You can go back many, many moons ago now to when we were here in our journey through the Bible. And you can get those. There are several, several CDs about the early chapters of Genesis where we talk about how heretical is it to believe in an old earth if you are a creationist. Once again, I don't advocate one way or the other. I just beg you, I urge you to least listen and explore the possibility that somebody who believes that the earth is billions of years old is not satanic. You are not a heretic There is a way of understanding the Genesis narrative of creation, believing it to be literally true and still believing that the earth is billions of years old. I'm not saying it's the best explanation. I'm saying it's a possibility. And this, people say then, would account for uh, dinosaur bones, fossils that appear to be hundreds of millions of years old. That these things were there for many, many years, and that this they were part of they were they were part of this creation that was there and thriving before the satanic rebellion, and then kind of like okay, now the earth's about form and void. Now we're going to uh, start over. But by this time, Satan is on earth. Again, the point of that little 
side journey was not to confuse you or get you wondering about the age of the earth or anything else. It's simply to account for the fact that whatever the devil was before, he was the devil when we meet him in Genesis chapter 3. All right? Now, let's, uh, let's look at another passage that uh, some people feel sheds light on this. In Luke chapter 10, Jesus sends the 70 out two by two to declare the kingdom of God. You remember this? He's been working with them, training them, and he said, now everything that I've been doing in your presence, I'm sending you out two by two. Go to these cities. I'm on my way to these cities. You tell them I'm coming. You tell them, though, the kingdom of God is at hand. Kingdom of heaven is at hand. And you do the things I've told you to do. Go out there, heal the sick, raise the dead, cast out demons, and come back and report. And so they do. In Luke chapter 10, Verse 17, then the 70 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, behold, or he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I give you the authority to trample on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. Now, verse 18, when he says, I saw Satan fall like lightning. Some say Jesus is remembering the day that God cast Satan off of his holy mountain and that he was essentially imprisoned on earth. He was cast down to the earth. Again, when was this? Was this during the interrupted creation? There's also a problem with Satan being this idea that Satan is limited or imprisoned on the earth. In Job chapter 1, Job 1, beginning in verse 6, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, From where do you come? So Satan answered the Lord and said, From going, back, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking back and forth on it. Now, a couple things quick. Did God not know where Satan came from? Of course he did. Did God know where Adam was when he said, Adam, where are you? Of course he did. What is he doing? It's kind of a different way of saying, of getting them to confess what they were up to. The next thing out of God's mouth was, have you considered my servant Job? And you better believe he wasn't saying, hey, I got an idea. Go torture Job. He's saying, I know what you've been up to. You've been looking at my servant Job. I know, what you, I know where you came from. I know what your plans are. So God was like, oh, Satan, what are you doing here? Where have you been? No. He's like, oh, what are you doing here? Where'd you come from? Oh, I've just been walking around on the earth. Wasn't looking at anybody in particular. Yeah, you were. You were looking at Job. Point is, he was on the earth, and now he's presenting himself before God with the sons of God, which is, in this case, it's referring to the angels. So he has access to heaven. He has access. He has an audience with God. Now, what does he go there for? He goes there to accuse us. He's the accuser. We'll come back to that. Uh, when he says, where did you come from? I guess even though God knew where he came from, there was more than one possible answer. Now, I have no idea what interest Satan would have walking around on the moon or another planet or any part of, other part of God's creation. I don't know what kind of access he has to the rest of creation. It's irrelevant as far as you and I are concerned. Point is, he's not, he wasn't like, because it kind of is weird to me that God would cast down Satan to earth as his prison and then put us on this same earth in the vicinity of Satan. 
I think there's, there's, there's different kinds of connections. It's confusing. Don't know if I'm going to straighten it all out. There's, there's some super important things we've got to get to. Um, he, what, the point is, he was able to approach God with these other angels. Let me read one last important passage speaking of this satanic rebellion, and then we will get to the important stuff. Revelation chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. Now, a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of twelve stars. Then, being with child, she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth, and another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his head. His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. She bore a male child who was to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up to God and his throne. Then the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared for God that they should feed her there 1,260 days. We'll cover that when we get to Genesis. And war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought, but they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out. Who was that dragon? Tells us right now. That serpent of old called the devil and Satan. This clears up. This is the main reason I bring you to this passage. It tells us clearly that the serpent in Genesis was the devil. And that when we see the word Satan, that's the devil. And the dragon is the devil. And that he has angels, demons. Uh, he was cast, uh, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth and his angels were cast, wi- cast out with him. Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of this Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren, who accused them, accused them before our God day and night has been cast down and they overcame him by the blood of the lamb by the word of their testimony and they did not love their lives to to the death therefore rejoice O heavens and you who dwell in them woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea for the devil has come down to you having great wrath because he knows that he has a short time now again when did every single event in this passage take place? Or does it take place? I think the times are a little bit jumbled up. Is this the original satanic rebellion or a future battle? I lean toward the former. I think this is showing us a picture of this original rebellion because we see this one-third of the stars. This is a representative of one-third of the angels and the dragon taking them, dragging him down with him. By the way, since it's a third of the angels, we know that there are a finite number of angels and therefore a finite number of demons. What's a third of infinity? Can't do that, right? Uh, if, if you're going to count by threes in, infinitely, you're still going to have an infinite number. There's not an infinite number. There's a finite number. And the n- finite number of demons is less than the finite number of angels. You need to know that because you need to know that Satan has limited resources. And just because there are a, a finite number of angels doesn't mean that God has finite resources. He's an infinite God. Okay, enough about origins for now. If I've thoroughly confused you, I've done my job. That last passage, the accuser of the brethren, the great deceiver, tells us a lot about Satan's power. He does have angelic power, energy, dunamis power. 
He can work false miracles. He can do supernatural things. I don't know exactly everything he can do, but we do know in the last days, many will be deceived by the Antichrist and his prophet who will be doing miracles by the power of the devil. The, the religious leaders of Jesus' day accused him of doing those things. They couldn't deny that miraculous things were taking place, but because they didn't like his doctrine, they said, well, you're just, uh, you're just casting out devils by the power of the devil. And then Jesus took him to task and straightened him out on that. But um, when you think, this was a great illustration by, by a guy. Uh, Mike Warnke is the one who shared this, and I know he had some issues and uh, and I'm not saying that, that, that everything that he said, well, in fact, we, we know there are some things he talked about that he kind of uh, stretched some things. But he did give an explanation when somebody was asking him how people do these the certain things that they had seen. He goes, I'm not talking about magic tricks. I'm not talking about magic shows. I'm talking about things levitating. And he says, here's how levitation works. You come over here and you wave your hand above this book and I lift this book. Only you can't see me because I'm a demon. Demons can do things. They can move things. You can read Lester Sumrall's accounts of, of, of having, a, I think it was a bed that got shoved over across the room. Anybody ever hear that story? You could hear this rattling and see that bed going, and, and he knew it was a devil in there just trying to mess with him, trying to scare him. And he went down there. He just, he, I, I'm not, I I'm give you the outlines of it. I can't give you the exact quote, but he, he got in there. He says, get out of here in the name of Jesus, and that bed stopped moving. He says he could sense that demonic presence leaving. And he said, wait, put the bed back. <laughs> so anyway, so we, when we talk about demonic possession, this isn't just something that takes place in the movies. It's not something that just took place uh, in ancient times. These things, it's really, uh, it's something that is uh, entirely possible and it's, t- it's something that really does take place. But after the resurrection, Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 28, beginning in verse 18. And Jesus came and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Luke chapter 10, beginning in verse 18 again. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I give you authority to trample on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. Satan does have power, but he does not have authority over the believer. How can he do anything if all authority has been given to Jesus, and he, by saying, you therefore go, is giving us that authority, how can the devil do anything? Revelation chapter 20. I told you we were going to be looking at a lot of scripture today. Revelation chapter 20, verse 1. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil, and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should deceive, deceive, deceive the nations no more. Till the thousand years were finished, But after these things, he must be released for a little while. This is called the millennial reign, the thousand-year millennial reign of Christ. We're not there yet. Uh, 
But I want you to see when it's talking about, it didn't say so he could destroy the nations no, no more, so that he could uh, tempt the nations, so that he could torture the nations, so he could deceive the nations no more. Look at 1 Peter 5.8. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like, like a roaring lion. He's not a roaring lion. He pretends to be one. He walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour, and on and on. Whom he may devour. The devil does, does have power, but at the end of the day, for the believer, it is only the power that we give him. He needs an in. He needs permission, whether we consciously give it to him or not. He's looking for people he may devour. He doesn't devour whoever he wants. By buying into his deceptions, we give him power over our lives. We buy into his deceptions. We agree with him with our bad confessions. We forget the promises of God and by one other thing that we are quickly coming to. Remember this. We give power to the devil by buying into his deceptions, by agreeing with him with our confessions, and, uh, and by forgetting the promises of God. But here's the other big thing. We are quickly coming to the big thing now. Jesus said, remember, the works that I do, you will do also, and greater works than these. You've heard me talk about that passage before. People say, well, he's not talking about going out and doing miracles like he did. He's talking about getting people saved and, and uh, stuff that he couldn't do until the resurrection and the ascension. That's okay, that's fine. I agree, there's greater things. But he didn't say just greater things. He said, you'll do the works that I do and greater things. Now, what did he do? Everywhere he went, man, he teached, he preached, he teached and prod. He taught and preached, he healed, cast out demons. He says, you're going to do these things. And when Jesus cast out demons, you see this happening again and again. It's kind of like healing. It says everywhere he went, he healed the multitudes, healed everybody that came to him. It says that he healed many who were oppressed of the devil, he cast out demons. But we also have several instances where we see it up close and personal. And when it happens, he does, there's no dramatic, there's no screaming, there's no seances, there's not a long process, there's not even a long conversation. I think the longest conversation we have between Jesus and a demon, he's talking to a legion of them at once. Just finds out their name, gives them permission to go into the swine. Just takes a few verses. Other than that, it's just come out of him. Devils did most of the talking. Ah, what are you doing here, son of man? You're come to torment us before the time. Nah, nah, leave us alone. <laughs> he said, let him go. Get out of him. He says, and I guess that's what I love about these pictures is you don't see Jesus psyching himself up. Okay, devil, I'm not scared of you. You know, when we, we talk about this, you know, we, I've seen people, you've seen movies, you've maybe been in meetings where, where there's, there's some sort of exorcism going on and you can almost sense the fear in the room. People getting a shouting match with the devil. I've been in prayer meetings where we shouted more at the devil than we did praying to God. You know what I'm talking about, right? Jesus, there's just never, we see, I think sometimes it's too bad, we kind of have to read between the lines, but I think we can even see mirth, we can see laughter in Jesus. We can see him enjoying life. And we can see some anger, righteous indignation, if you'd rather call it that, in Jesus' life. We have to understand that, yes, he was fully God, but he was fully man, and he experienced this range of emotions, except he was never fearful. He was the guy who was never afraid of anything. 
And so I love that, that when you see him even dealing with manifested demons, even a host of them, a legion of them, you're going to have to get out of this guy. And they're begging him, oh, please, please, at least just send us into the pigs. Just get out. He was totally in charge of the situation. And he says what? I am always with you. Fear not. Fear not. I've given you power over all the power of the enemy. All this authority is mine. I'm with you. And I've given you power to tread upon serpents and scorpions and all the, pow- scorpions and all the power of the enemy. And nothing shall by any means hurt you. One more prep scripture. All right, and then we'll bring it home. Colossians chapter 2, verse 15. Just one verse. Having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. Bottom line is this, that since the cross and the resurrection, Satan is already a defeated foe. All things are under the feet of Jesus Christ, and you and I are in Jesus Christ. That is not to say that Satan isn't still wreaking havoc in the world. He is, but he's doing it by continuing to deceive people. One of the greatest deceptions he's managed uh, over the last uh, several centuries is to convince people that he doesn't even exist. You want to hear a great song, I've probably referenced it before, from Keith Green's first album. There's a song called No One Believes in Me Anymore. And it's sung from the standpoint of the devil. I love, I think the opening line is, my job keeps getting easier as day drags into day. The magazines, the newspapers, print every word I say. I don't know if that's how it begins. But that's it. Uh, It's getting very simple now since no one believes in me anymore. Talking about all the stuff he's doing, how much he's enjoying deceiving people, wrecking lives. And the reason it's so easy is because nobody even believes in him. But he is wreaking havoc in the world by deception, and and believers often suffer too. I cannot answer every single circumstance, but I can tell you what I think is the most important combination, the one-two punch, as it were, that will bring victory into our lives. In James chapter 4, beginning in verse 6, it says this, but he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Skip to verse 10. It says, Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. 1 Peter chapter 5 says essentially the same thing. Beginning in verse 5, it says, Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another, and be clothed with humility, for God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. Here's the formula. I don't like formulas, but here's something you've got to remember. It's first submit, then resist. First submit, then resist. You have to understand that God, even though it says humble yourselves, he gives grace to the humble, that God desires to exalt you. For you to be exalted is for you to be lifted up. And what does it say? Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God and he will 
exalt you in due season. God is not against you being exalted. He's against you exalting yourself. So how are we exalted? By humbling ourselves in God's sight. God isn't about humbling us or humiliating us. That's what will happen. We'll wind up humbled and humiliated if we try to exalt ourselves. If we humble ourselves, he exalts us. He lifts us up. The problem for those of us who have an awareness and a belief in the spirit realm, and how do you believe the Bible? How do you operate as a Christian? How do you try to apply biblical principles without believing in a spirit realm? Beyond me. Oh, Lord knows there are people who do it. There are whole churches full of people who try to get the wisdom and the blessings of just living a more or less biblical life. But we don't believe in that devil stuff. Good night. They barely believe in the Jesus stuff. Oh, devils, demons. That's just an old-fashioned way of talking about temptation and wickedness in general. Well, where did this wickedness come from? Of course there are demons. Of course there are devils. The problem is, once we embrace that reality, it's real easy to step over into weirdness that comes about because of an obsession with the spiritual. And it's dangerous. We, you know, people toy with spiritual things. It's dangerous to play games. You know, say, ah, it's just a, it's, it's a Ouija board. Nothing serious is going on. Any little thing that hints of the, the spiritual, no matter what the original intentions are, I personally believe you're opening a door to genuine spiritual intervention. Okay? So the problem is, staying away from that, I could preach a whole message on that, maybe we'll save it for next Halloween. But when we start, when we, once we recognize demons are real, then we recognize, and hopefully we realize these things at the same time, I don't need to be afraid of them. Do devils have power? Yes. Jesus didn't say they have no power. He says, I've given you power over that power. He can't exercise that power in you, your life unless you yield your authority. Okay? You can trample on their power. All the power of the enemy. You get serpents, scorpions, nothing until the enemy means hurt you. So we realize, okay, I've got this authority. And so then we talk about, here's how do you fight the devil? By rebuking him. I rebuke you, devil, in Jesus' name. Get out of here, devil. I rebuke you in Jesus' name. I rebuke you. I rebuke you. I've told you this story before, how, man, when we learned the word rebuke, we started rebuking everything. As soon as somebody would say something negative, I rebuke you. I rebuke that in Jesus' name. Didn't want that come a reality in our life. You could, we couldn't say, and this is good. This is a whole other sermon. But I'm almost done anyway, so I'll tell this story again. It's probably been at least six months since I told it last. When we learned the power of our words, man, we stopped saying things like, oh, man, that joke just, I laughed so hard I died. Oh, you're killing me. We couldn't say things like that. Still bothers me to hear things like that. Or it bothers me when these things slip out of my mouth. But, man, we took it so seriously at the beginning. It's like, ooh, boy, you just, you just shiver. And I remember, uh, I don't know what it was, Lisa had said to Lori, and Lori is like, I don't know if she said something like, I'm going to kill you, or I don't know what it was. They were little. They were sixth grade, I think. 
We're down in Oklahoma. And, uh, and Lori starts screaming, rebuke that, rebuke that, take, meaning take it back. Take your words back. Rebuke it, rebuke it. And Lisa's like, okay, I rebuke you. And Lori is like, ah! She screams. She, I think she thought she was just going to disappear because Lisa used the magic word rebuke on her. Now, do our words have power? Is it important to say things that are in line with the word of God? Can we rebuke the devil? Yeah. But what is our first Absolutely the purest way of resisting the devil. It is not to stand and say, I resist you, devil. It is to submit to God. Because you cannot go two directions at once. Submission to God is obedience to God. That's what it means to humble yourself. Humbling yourself isn't going before God and saying, Oh, I'm a worm. I'm worthless. I'm nothing. I can't even look at you. That's not humility. Humility is obedience. It's saying, you know better than I do. What's pride? It isn't saying, I'm great. Pride is saying, I know better than you. Pride is saying, I'm going to do my thing, not yours. According to the Bible, because this is what Satan did. So to be humble is to submit. And to submit is to obey. I do what God wants me to do. And guess what? If I'm doing it, it's kind of like this. This is one of the earliest sermons I ever preached. And there's things I've had to go back and correct over the years. You know, I preached this, I used to believe, and I kind of had to tweak it. I still believe this 100%. It's kind of like saying, God says, go this way. And the devil says, go this way. I do not have to worry about two things at once. I don't have to sit there and say, I will not go that way, I will not go that way. All I need to do is go this way. I can't go... So I don't have to waste a lot of time saying, I resist you, devil. I resist you in Jesus' name. I, stop. I will not do what you want me to do. All I need to concentrate on, what has God told me to do? How do I honor him today? Because when I'm doing that, I am resisting the devil. When I am going east, I am not going west. I just pointed the right way too, didn't I? What do you think about it? Woo! Thank you. you feel that? You feel that? Now, when it comes to resisting, We find ourselves submitting to God. I'm wrapping this up, by the way. We're getting close. Not close enough for the praise and worship team to come up yet, but we're close. We find ourselves submitting to God and therefore automatically resisting the devil. And then there is a time to actively resist. What does that look like? Ephesians chapter 6, beginning in verse 10. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord. And in the power of his might, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities. (laughs) Uh, Against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this age, and against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand... Stand, therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith, with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end, and with, uh, and with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. Now, Praise and worship team, you can be making your way up here. 
Because we will find ourselves, this is where we kind of wind up. If you've lived long enough as a believer, I believe you can testify to this. We decide and we walk out our submission to God. We do the things that we know to do. That does not mean the devil will not attack us. It means we ultimately cannot be defeated by him. All right? Having done all to stand, stand, therefore. But you stand in the armor of God. When it says, above all, take up the shield of faith with which you quench all the fiery darts of the enemy, guess what that means? It means the enemy is shooting things at you. What do we do during that time? Wait, I'm doing everything right. Why isn't the devil fleeing? He will. Meanwhile, what do you do? You stand. How do you stand? By continuing to submit to God and the things that come out of your mouth are not agreeing with the devil. They're agreeing with the word of God. That's what the word confess means. To say together. Right? To agree with God. And so when the fiery darts are coming, maybe that fiery dart is a financial dart. Maybe that fiery dart is physical sickness. Maybe it's depression. Maybe it's any number of things that subtract from you thriving in the life that Jesus said is supposed to be abundant. What do we do? We say, thank you, God. Your word is still true. We can be honest with him. I don't know why I'm suffering this. Lord, if there's something messed up in my life, if there's an adjustment I need to make, reveal it to me so I can make it. Otherwise, Lord, I just thank you that deliverance is on its way. I thank you that the devil's a defeated foe. I will not cave into this. I will not concentrate. I will keep my eyes on you and not bring glory to this situation. Stand up with me. I can remember, I won't, I won't say a name. It's been many, many years. There was somebody who used to get up and give testimony on a regular basis. And it got to the point where as soon as this person uh, got the microphone, you knew we were going to hear a testimony about the power of Satan. Because we would hear, I don't know, five minutes of every bad thing the devil was doing to this person that week. And then maybe we'd hear 10 seconds of, but, but God is good. I know I'm going to make it. Old Slewfoot can't keep me down forever. But are you sure trying? And let me tell you how he's tried this week. Now, I don't want to hear that. Yeah, it's not that I don't care. If there's something going on in your life, I want to know so I can pray specifically. But let's always focus on how big God is. Let's don't pretend the problems don't exist. Man, beautiful illustration. I don't know why I didn't have this in my notes, but you've heard it. David and Goliath. Goliath came out facing David, and he was all confident because he was comparing himself to David. The, the, all the, the men in Saul's army were terrified of Goliath because they were comparing themselves to Goliath. He was a giant. Why wasn't David afraid? Because he's seeing Goliath compared to God. You're, you're, you're nothing compared to the God of Israel. He's already given you into my hand. This is how we need to approach this life. And I know it sounds easy. It does sound easy standing up here in, in, uh, on a Sunday morning behind this pulpit. And I know in practice, I've been there. I know it's hard to put into practice. I am saying once you've done everything there is to stand, you still have to stand. And the promise is still true. And we can rejoice because of that. Why, do, why are we looking down? Because the devil lives in hell? No, because he's under our feet. That's why the title of this message is looking down. When we're talking about the enemy, we're talking about an enemy that is under our feet because he's under Christ's feet and we are in Christ. Amen? Amen.
praise the Lord. Now, that's good news if you're in Christ. If you're not in Christ, guess what? You still have an enemy. Well, I know a lot of people who aren't in Christ. The devil is sneaky. Here's another interesting thing the Bible tells us about our enemy, that we're not ignorant of his schemes. And we can see why he leaves some people alone. Because they're making his job easier. Why would he attack somebody who's promoting his agenda? All right? They are still going to ultimately suffer the fate that was really meant for the devil and his angels. Eternal separation from God. The lake of fire. And you say, well, I'm not living for God. I haven't really submitted my life to God, but I don't really see that the devil's bothered me. And it's not because I'm out promoting his agenda, because I'm not. The devil has limited resources. Why would he bother? He's like, well, this person, he's not really not worshiping me. He's not drawing other people to me, but he's not saved either. We just kind of leave him alone. No crisis in his life. Maybe he'll never turn to God. Meanwhile, he's got to focus his resources on spiritual powerhouses like, like me. Uh, boy, that was meant to be a lighthearted joke, okay? But seriously, he's got limited resources. He's going to focus those on the areas where that, need, that he needs to defend, keep from being damaged. Until he gets beat up a little too much, then he'll retreat for a while. Nobody's safe forever unless you're in Christ. You want to be on the winning side of this thing. You want to be in a position where you can humble yourself before him. Not because you're afraid of the devil, but because you don't want to miss on the good plan that God has for you. It is a scary place. I'll admit, the world's a scary place without God. And one of the things, the thing that makes us scary ultimately is the devil, still the prince of this world. All authority has been given to Jesus. He gives it to us, but we're strangers in this world. One day, Jesus will come back. He'll put his foot down on this earth and rule and reign and show us how it's really, really done. Meanwhile, you and I can enjoy the benefits of that relationship right here in his world. Thanks for listening. We hope that this message encouraged and equipped you in your walk with Christ. Make sure to follow us on Facebook or Instagram to stay updated with what's going on at Living Word Family Church. Have a great day.